Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. The U.S. women's national soccer team is advancing the ball toward equal pay. Fresh off the highs of a Gold Cup win, two players have joined forces with the luxury watchmaker Tag Heuer. So I sat down with those teammates, Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger. I asked them about this new partnership and where things stand on the pitch when it comes to equal pay. Well, we are, yeah, announcing our partnership with Tag Heuer, and we are doing a multi-deal year deal with them right now, and um, we've worked with them in the past. We've worn their watches for a really long time, and we are just so excited to be a part of a brand that values... Similar values as us. Yeah, exactly, and and really values inclusion, Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. Ali and I are two out, uh, we're getting married yeah. soon in December, so mm-hmm. it's been really great to have a company that supports that and values that and um, really likes what we have to offer. It's nice that they've been a sponsor of the U.S. Women's National Team, but also our club team, Orlando Pride, and the NWSL. So Tag Heuer, you know, wanting to um, continue that partnership with us individually um, and as a couple, I think has been truly amazing. And we're excited to see what we can, you know, do in the future with them. Now, in the past, I feel like female athletes often got pitched endorsement deals with um, less high-profile brands than their male counterparts. How do you see that changing now? Is there evidence of it changing, Ali? I mean, I hope so, yes. If we continue the conversation uh, and we continue to talk about the inequality in um, our industries, or in, you know, for women across all industries, actually. So we're continuing that fight. We're using our platforms as best as we can. I hope to see it change um, sooner rather than later. But um, with partnerships like these, um, specifically with Tag Heuer, it shows that people want to invest, companies want to invest in, in us um, as women, as females, as badass, um, powerful uh, figures who are out in the public trying to make change and and grow. And I think that's something that we relate um, to the companies that we and the brands that we love to work with is um, there's growth for change and we want to see that. And so I hope that it can, you know, get better and we can become more equal um, to our male counterparts and in our sport specifically, but also for women across all industries. And um, that's what we deserve. Ashley? Well, I just, uh, you know, to to piggyback off that, I think as a couple, um, we value change. We want to create change, and that's what we strive for. And what I love about partnering with Tag Heuer is, like, you can't create change by staying in your lane. Mm. 
and that is such a, a principle that we live by and that the brand now is living by and I love that they're branching out and having us and you know having us for multi years and having the visibility I think the visibility is the key component here mm -hmm. it's like we constantly need to be seeing it to create change mm -hmm. and um, you know having platforms to talk about you know the pay gap and talk about the struggles we face as women and to be supported by such a massive brand that wants us to continue the good fight is massive, it's huge. Mm -hmm. So we're just so happy to finally be able to now announce the partnership with Tag yeah. Warrior and continue to pave the way for women and create the change that we've always imagined. And I'm so glad you brought up uh, gender pay because that's a huge conversation right now, especially on the field for you guys. Mm -hmm. Has the gender pay conversation changed in any way since the U.S. Women's National Team's FIFA World Cup victory? How, how has it changed? It's really helped our cause um, and our fight for change because we're proving that uh, with winning and being successful, um, you know, we're, we're providing all of the solutions to, you know, the problem. And we are saying that we are good enough. We we you know have a great product and and quality um, out on the field. And so and we're winning and we're showing the receipts and showing the results. So what's the issue? Um, and, and we're the winningest team, um, obviously yeah. in the U.S. But you know in the world in women's football. And I mean, we're doing our part and we're bringing. Um, change to Absolutely. our team, us as individuals, uh, on the world stage, uh, the pinnacle of our sport at a World Cup, um, we're proving why we deserve um, to be treated equally and to be paid equally. So now it's just the matter of getting that payment, getting those results, mm -hmm. helping women across all industries really um, fight for that. And I think yeah, we've yeah. proven that we deserve it. Um, and we've proven that we deserve equality. And that's what we're constantly fighting for. Yet, of course, there's a conflict here as well because the U.S. Soccer Federation claims that four players in particular, Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, and Becky Sauerbrunn, um, they want to represent the class, uh, but they make too much money when compared with the rest of the team. Therefore, the four can't adequately represent the team in the class action lawsuit. How do you respond to that? I know you can't get into the specifics yeah. of everything, but in general, how do you respond to that kind of argument? I just think it's a little bit unfair. I think for women's sports, like uh, branding is so different than men's sports. Um, we have to sell ourselves to make money because a majority of, of our revenue comes outside of the sport because of the pay gap. And I think what I'm hearing from Ali and what I want to make very clear is it's not that we want more money we deserve more money mm. I think that is the massive component here is we are putting in the same time we are putting the same work we are sacrificing the same things as men and we are bringing in the numbers so it's not a matter of us kicking and screaming because we think we want all these millions of dollars and we want 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 no we deserve it mm -hmm. at the end of the day and we produce results and um, that's what you see when, when we show up at a world event, is continuing to show up for our country, to show up for women, to show up for what we deserve is right. And I also think that's an unfair um, 
statement because you know we all try to make more outside of football because we don't get enough earning just by playing our, the sport that we love and being on a club team and the national team right. itself. You don't we earn a living wage. We have to actually that. do more mm-hmm. um, to earn a good living. Um, so I think that's pretty unfair to say that they're just doing the most that they can for for their brand, their own brand individually, to supplement what we don't make from our employer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, within. Um, U.S. Soccer, the Federation, and also in the NWSL. So I don't know if that's a fair statement from them. I, I think that um, it is definitely we have to make sure that you know we're doing more outside of football in order to just supplement um, what Set we're not making. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is something we hear from female athletes across different sports, not just soccer, but I hear it right. from uh, female hockey players as well. Critics will say, though, that you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And in this case, case, the collective bargaining agreement is what it is. The contract states what it states and therefore better luck next time. How do you think this will eventually inform the next round of negotiations when you get to that point? Well, I think, you know, we can't go into too much of the negotiation, but uh, I I understand that point of view, mm-hmm. but what I will say is when we go into these negotiations, we do ask for what we feel we deserve. We just don't always get it. So at the end of the day, when you're doing negotiations and you work your whole entire life for massive moments such as Olympics, World Cup, you're just not going to, you can't just say, well, this isn't the contract I want. I'm not going to show up. Mm -hmm. And they know that and they use that leverage, which makes it really difficult because Mm -hmm. we we want to go to these tournaments. We want to be successful, but we want to pay, be paid adequately for the work we're putting in. So it's so hard to strike or do mm. these different things when you wait your whole life for this moment and to capitalize on this moment, it's no longer about the money. And I think it's a, it's a hard predicament we're in constantly mm-hmm. because we're puppets. We're being pulled in different directions and we want to continue with doing what we love because we love it. And it's not always just about the money. But I do think the harsh reality is, I mean, when they shut it down and they say, no, we're not willing to pay that. No, we're not willing to give you first class flights. No, we're not willing to always give you chartered flights or this or that or chefs or what the men have. You know, we kind of just have to agree with it and move forward. Otherwise, we're constantly at a standstill. And, you know, we have we have to prepare and focus for yeah. the championship. You can't play your sport. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and But also we endure the same amount of emotional, mental, physical mm. stress that um, anyone else does who plays football in the world. So, I mean, the comparison is just unfair. Um, and it's just different in different ways. Sometimes it's we endure more, um, you know, having to do extra mm-hmm. on top of just playing the sport that we love and doing our job. Yeah. You have to do more in order to just be comfortable in playing and showing up for work every day. I think the harsh reality is, you know, when our careers come to an end, which some are longer than others, we have, we've dedicated our whole life to our craft and we have to find another career. Mm-hmm. And we have to find it immediately to continue mm-hmm. paying bills, putting food on the table, doing these things that are necessary to survive. And our male counterparts don't have that stress. 
So when we, st when we talk about creating change, this is not a fight about money for us right now. It's a fight for women who are going to be paving the way for new generations that deserve to put their whole life into their craft and be rewarded for it. So your male counterparts can be rewarded for posterity in a way that women can't, is what Absolutely. you're saying. Um, big picture, what kind of progress is being made when it comes to closing the gender pay gap, not just in soccer, but across women's sports? I mean, how much do you look at what's happening in other sports and kind of bring those ideas, those best practices into what you're looking at in, in football? I mean, we're, the fight is every day. I think we're just um, encouraging people to support the club team that is in their city. And if it's not in their city, then support any team uh, that's in the NWSL and just kind of keep the conversation going. Get sponsors and brands aware that um, you have these badass, powerful women who are fighting um, for inclusion and fighting for equality and fighting uh, to work hard every day and to prove um, that we're motivated and driven to succeed. And I think um, also, just seeing how many people are following the U.S. Women's National Team from this summer. I mean, not just this summer, and previous World Cups as mm -hmm. well. But um, I think just getting people to recognize that we do have a league in the United States. We are worth um, supporting, um, whether that's through sponsorships or brands, but also just as a fan base, mm. find your local club team, go out to a game, because if you at least go to one, you're going to go to another, and you're going to continue to go back, because the atmosphere is unreal, and it's so encouraging. I think as long as we keep the conversation and we continue to fight um, and do our part, we're going to attract a lot of, you know, sponsorships and, and um club owners to want to be a part of you know what we love to do which yeah. is play football but it's also getting other club teams you know having other club teams have a men's and you know women's team which I think is kind of where we are going in the future but it's just to keep the conversation going and letting people know that we do play soccer we do have a professional league here and to support your local team. Winning also helps a lot, too. Winning, winning really does. helps. Yeah, really winning doesn't does. hurt. Not that it's everything, but... People start to listen. It's really great. You get to sit in seats like this and have a yeah. great conversation. But I think what mm -hmm. this all boils down to is just invest in women. Like, yeah. we need, as a, mm -hmm. you know, as a culture, mm -hmm. to invest in women in all platforms. And that's what we are fighting for. This week saw a change of the guard at one of the biggest sportswear companies. Under Armour is ushering in a change in leadership, but not of strategy. Founder Kevin Plank will step down as the CEO of the sports apparel company that he began in 1995, starting next year. He'll stay on as chairman. Patrick Frisk, Under Armour's current president and COO, will step in as the new CEO come January 1st. The shares rallied on the announcement, and Caroline sat down with both the incoming and outgoing CEOs to ask about this transition. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for us. And first of all, this is completely my decision, of course, in concert with a terrific board of directors. It's something we're working on for a while, really, since Patrick joined here two and a half years ago. And that was part of the process of getting to know each other and work with each other and then understand what the vision is. But, you know, recently we've been talking about this idea of moving from defense to offense, where you've seen us in transformation in the last few years. And really, it's, it's just the perfect opportunity for the business to do that. Um, and 
What I think this really gives us is this ability for freedom is because as we were growing, it's difficult because as Patrick kept uh, ascending in the organization and you know moving things underneath of Patrick, it was whose hands are on the wheel. And I want to make sure that that's something that's always clear. It's impossible to be effective if that's not the case. And so my moving to this role of being executive chairman and brand chief, I still have the ability to work and do the things that I think I need to, need to happen in the organization, allow Patrick to run the day to day and I can continue to vision and think on behalf of the business. So Patrick, defense to offense, the vision, spell it for us because you say in the release that it's time the realization of its full potential. What is the full potential of Under Armour? The full potential we laid out, we believe, uh, quite uh, quite good last year in our in our investor day. And and you know one of the great things about this transition right now is is the plan. You know it's been a plan transition. Uh, we worked on it for quite some time. We've also worked on the plan for quite some time, and not just the two of us, but also the entire leadership team and the entire company. Uh, we're very confident that you know the way we're thinking about the uh, the business right now, the way that we're thinking about where we compete, athletic performance, who we're for, the focused performer, and actually also our brand positioning of the human performance company is going to allow us to continue to be successful inside of athletic performance. And like Kevin said, you know, as we turn the corner into 2020, what you'll see from Under Armour is a louder brand. You know, we're turning from defense to offense, uh, which was planned, in, you know, all along. Uh, so we believe the transition now really sets us up to be able to have continuity in leadership, consistency in execution, and ultimately uh, enables us to win uh, you know, over the long term. Ultimately, Kevin asked me to come here to, to help him you know, with the vision of becoming an eternal brand, and that's what we believe we're on our path to doing. Mm -hmm. And you talk about performance, 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 rather than, say, perhaps athleisure, but you both sit there in Under Armour tops at the moment, gentlemen, and I, I'm guessing you're both going to work out at some point today, but perhaps not immediately. So, Patrick, are you going to look more at the athleisure area or is this really something you remain very focused upon, ensuring that these are fit for purpose and usable rather than for every day wandering around the kitchen? You know, uh, we, we, uh, we love that question. We love it because we don't look at the two things as separate. You know, today, if you want to appeal to the consumer, and we know this from all the work we do with Consumer Insights, you have to look good. You have to look beautiful. And Kevin loves to talk about beautiful performance or there is no performance without, without beauty. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's how we think about it. So the way that people ultimately choose to wear our, our, our gear, uh, whether it's footwear, apparel, uh, really is up to the consumer ultimately. Our job is to make sure that that, that product, uh, the gear, is, is truly not just incredibly functional because our vision of making things that people don't know that they need and once they have it can't imagine living without needs to go through every product that we make. Everything that you buy from Under Armour has to do something. So ultimately, if it does that and it's beautiful, we believe people are going to make choices of how to wear it whenever and however. They are useful, they do something, and they're also in many ways connected. There seems to be something that really has made the yes. brand stand apart, particularly in the digital focus, the apps that you have. Kevin, can you spell out how you want to continue to digitalize this particular company and how you think that can connect you closer to the customer base? It's a monster opportunity, you know, as we work down the road toward really enhancing our loyalty program and, and utilizing the nearly now 300 million people that have downloaded one of our apps. And so it is the, the world's largest food database. It's, uh, you know, one of, it's the largest health and fitness database. And so as we start to action, that's a real opportunity. And some of the things you said, it's, it's combining the, 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 the digital with the physical. And like our connected footwear, our recent hover program, which, you know, every shoe comes with, a, with, 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 a, with an app. 
You can download the app and track yourself, and you don't need a phone to track you know, your distance, your splits, but it also comes with, once you run with the app and you have the shoe up and running, it'll give you gait coaching. It'll tell you your stride, your cadence, your distance, your time, and it'll help you make improvements to improve yourself. And so our brand is all about, Patrick says, a human performance company of what we're developing too, and that doesn't change. And frankly, my ability to now spend more time focusing on those products and those end uses and out of the day-to-day, -day, I think, is a real, a real opportunity for us. And so I can't wait to take some of the divisions that you have and then you sort of get pulled down into running some of the things that happen in a, in a job. And um, I, I can't wait to spend more time focusing on that and, um, and continue to work on things like um, our upcoming 56 earning call, earnings call. <laughs> so I've done this for a long time, uh, heading into year 15, and so I can't wait to, I'm really invigorated by this next chapter and what it means. Not that you're counting. Patrick, your, your, your perspective. <laughs> Somebody else had to count that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> your perspective in terms of the innovations, the connected devices, the way you yeah. can monitor your split, the way you're running, the cadence, is that what's going to turn around sales in the US and North America in particular? Is this when you start to see the growth return to that part of the business and that part of the globe? You know, the way uh, we think about it in, in, in more holistically is, is really around the consumer. And for us to understand what matters to the consumer is incredibly important. We believe that with the work that we're doing around our apps through loyalty and CRM, as well as, as of course, the, the touch points we have through either social media, e-commerce, our, our real you know, stores and so forth, really enables us to understand where the consumer want to connect with us, how they want to connect with us, and ultimately our, our aim going forward is to make sure that we're there for the consumer whenever and however they like to connect with our brand deliver the best possible product for them and also make sure that we're communicating in a way that's that's meaningful to them so in other words consideration for the brand will increase as we go into the future because we're simply getting better at this and we have an enormous amount of, 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 of what I would call good data about the consumer through our apps uh, that that is truly unique to, uh, to this brand you combine that with our incredible innovation pipeline around footwear and apparel and functionality and performance um, you're going to see something really incredible, we believe, going forward when we continue to turn this on for the consumer in, in the years to come. And Kevin, as brand chief, how do you make sure that that remains as global as it has been and capitalize on the growth that you've seen, particularly in, say, Asia Pacific? I think we have an amazing opportunity in every corner of the world, and so you know we're excited to continue to take this idea of you know making athletes better, which just drives the the simple mission. Is that Under Armour is the cool thing is as we've been able to grow and expand the company from uh, U.S. to U.S. companies selling uh, product other places to really being a global brand. Is that athlete speaks athlete, and there's a there's a need, the market opportunity. When we talk about focus performance, nearly a hundred billion dollars, and so you know we're going to go attack that, um, and we're going to do it with the things that have made us successful here in the U.S., as well as you'll see us, you know, dig back in and retrench ourselves. Um, you know, the thing about authentic brands is we're on field, and this is a real, it's a real company. The story's real. The team is real. Uh, the mission is real. And when you have every product, when you see these tops that we're wearing, it may work great with a polo or, or, or a, a uh, button down, but it's also something that you're right, you could take this out and I could go for a workout or run mm -hmm. and it would, it would dry and wick and keep you cool. So that's the DNA that is Under Armour is that it's a product that does blow your mind and you know allows you to do things that you never thought you could do with just a, a shirt or, or something else. Inventing the category of performance apparel has been an awesome ride and we're looking to continue to take that forward. And it feels like the partnership is real. I've heard you speak before about 
yin to each other's yang. The fact that you told me off camera that you came in wearing the same outfit today, like you're morphing into, into twins. But how, for those who are out there looking to build such strong business connections within their own internal business, how do you guys make it work? Well, I, I have the bigger, I have the bigger, bigger closet, so I, I swapped mine out for Patrick uh, and deferred to that. But I, I think it's, you know, hopefully this is something that people look at and say, this is a transition. Everybody's, you know, everybody's standing up. Everybody's eyes are wide open. You know, there's no health issue. There's no, you know, board pressure. There's nothing like that. We just think this is the right time for us to make this and really true the, the organization, the structure, the way we're titled and the way that we're actually operating today. And so, again, I, I can't wait to sort of be on the outside and, and outside meaning uh, that brand chief role and what it means from a, um, you know, as executive chairman and continue to support our team, but making sure that I know that there's a job that needs to be done in the CEO role of managing and running that day-to-day -day with Patrick continuing to report to me. And I think that balance is something that we've been practicing for a long time. And, you know, we'll put that in action in January and let everybody know this will be uh, the way that, frankly, it, it should happen from founder-led to uh, continue to be inspired and also be a part of and, and driving that mission. But let, let our team really drive with people that are professionals and uh, know how to take this. And so I'm, I'm proud of that and I'm really proud of our partnership. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Canadian department store Hudson's Bay announcing they'll go private in a deal valuing the company at $1.45 billion. That's after a bid by a group of investors led by Chairman Richard Baker, who are trying their hand at reinvigorating the fading 349-year-old department store chain. So we discussed the deal with Mark Cooper. He's CEO of PJ Solomon, which has advised Hudson's Bay on deals in the past. We began by asking Mark why this particular deal makes sense for Hudson Bay. So we are not advising the company on this transaction. We have advised the company on a number of in the transactions past. in the past, including the Carhoff-Carstadt transaction. And we are currently advising them on the sale of Lord & Taylor to La Tote. Having said that, um, why does it make sense for Hudson's Bay to go private? If you could share your thoughts there. Uh, it, well, it, there are a myriad reasons. I think the big, the big two are, uh, a, as you know, a very difficult uh, retail environment, particularly in the department store uh, segment, uh, that uh, I think is well documented. And the second issue is a very complicated story that's always been the case with Hudson Bay because it really originated out of a desire to uh, find undervalued real estate within retail businesses. And Richard and company were very successful in doing that with the first transaction being Lord & Taylor and the second being Hudson Bay. Um, and there was value created there, but it made for a very complicated story. Uh, and so that, in my personal view, maybe wasn't the best public market story to begin with. And now it's been even uh, made tougher given, one, uh, the continued decline in the department store marketplace, and two, 
uh, the uncertainty around retail-oriented real estate. Well, the cost over the next 24 to 36 months is one of the big reasons they said that they're going private in the first place. I think something that's staggering here, for example, is the fact that even when you're closing stores, you have to pay the leases on them, including as with Lord and Taylor. I mean, how much of a problem does that become as you're trying to turn around a business like this? It's a huge problem, and uh, it is not typical of anything you see in the public markets. This is now a turnaround, restructuring, a reboot of a business. This is not about uh, consistent uh, earnings uh, quarter after quarter. This is about making transactions, making difficult transactions in order to preserve and create value. Yes, you mentioned some stranded costs in uh, Lord & Taylor, which we did work on. There's about $75 million a year in stranded rental uh, expense. Wow. In the Carhoff Carstock transaction, they retained the Netherlands business. Another, I believe it's 75 thereabouts, uh, for a 10-year period. These are very significant numbers and not the kinds of things you see in a business like this in the public markets. I think that's the very reason why it's going private because what needs to happen now is what I would call a very down and dirty, very nitty-gritty restructuring mm. and workout which I think uh, the team there, Richard, uh, Helena on the operating side, are well uh, equipped mm -hmm. to do. Uh, but is it for, uh, is it f for the faint of heart? <laughs> no. Uh, and is it for the public markets? Absolutely not. I feel like retailing isn't for the faint of hearts in general right now. And <laughs> talk to us about when you're getting down and dirty and doing these sorts of restructures, what are the key headwinds that you're focusing on apart from, say, the rental prices? Is it the new entrance to the market, the fact that people can now rent their clothing? I mean, what are the key priorities now for Hudson Bay? Yeah, so it's all the above. Uh, and so their operating business, operating business and their real estate, by the way, because their real estate is, in fact, uh, retail-oriented real estate. If you mm. could put condos up on across the street from Rockefeller Center, you might have a different value proposition, but you can't. So it's a retail footprint. Uh, and the answer is all of uh, all of the new technology that's disintermediating retail is having a massive effect on uh, on any and all operators. So whether it's uh, the the new digitally native brands direct-to-consumer brands, whether it's rentals, whether it's Amazon, of course, uh, it's, it, it is pervasive and it, is, uh, it, is, it is, uh, makes life difficult. Well, now they own Saks, big luxury brand. People are thinking we're getting into a recession. How do you proceed as a luxury brand owner and how do those businesses fare as the economy starts to get worse? Uh, the answer is uh, they go down. In 2008, 2009, there's no doubt uh, that when you took the, the big three at the time, Barney's, which, by the way, is bankrupt, uh, uh, Neiman's, which is close, uh, and Sachs, they all, had, uh, they all had downturns in that marketplace. Now, whether we believe that there will be a significant recession or not, I'd say the, the bigger issues are uh, what we talked about a moment ago with is what's happening in technology. The other piece which we don't talk about is who are really the suppliers to these big department stores? Mm -hmm. They're the mega brands. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the LVMHs, it's the Kerings, the Gucci's, those companies. And so they're becoming a bit ubiquitous in terms of what they sell as opposed to being differentiated. And on top of that, they're competing with those same brands yeah. in their direct-to-consumer offerings. Tough place to be when, when you have nothing other than your brand and your location. 
And finally, we wrap things up by taking a deeper look at this week's biggest show on Capitol Hill. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg returning to Washington to testify before the House Financial Services Committee. The hearing was ostensibly about the social media giant's plans to launch Libra, its cryptocurrency. But the Facebook CEO faced a barrage of questions and grievances from skeptical lawmakers on everything from data privacy to political ads. So do you consider Libra to be money? I consider Libra to be a payment system. So it's like me having my money in Wells Fargo Bank. You could think about it that way. Okay. Although we're not a bank, uh, we're not applying for a bank charter. I think that the right analogy. I, but that's the problem. The American competitiveness angle and the competition with China is a national security issue. In China especially, uh, they immediately kicked off this public-private partnership with some of their biggest companies uh, in order to race to try to uh, build a system like this uh, quickly. Will it be possible to conduct anonymous transaction using Libra? Um, There's a whole host of problems. So will Libra allow anonymous transactions? I think that it is an open question. I want to ask you a very simple question. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, are you a capitalist or are you a socialist? Congressman, I, I, I would definitely consider myself a capitalist. Frankly, I'm, I'm not sure that we've learned anything new here. So we discussed all of this with Katerina Pister, a professor for comparative law at Columbia Law School. She is also director of the Center on Global Legal Transformation at Columbia Law and has written and even testified about the issue. We began by asking why she has been so critical of Libra and what her biggest concern is right now. My one, number one concern is that we basically have a privately sponsored, for-profit currency of currencies at the global level that is not really safeguarded well and might uh, increase risk rather than, rather than mitigate risk. But isn't, so the argument, though, that you're hearing from a, lot of, from a lot of people who are pushing back on this is that either A, it's not needed, or that B, if it is needed or if it's going to uh, sort of rear its head, that the central banks of the world should sort of be in charge of it. Well, I think there is a point that something like Libra is needed or maybe um, central bank issued digital currencies. I do think that they have a point that our current payment system is outdated, mm-hmm. particularly in the United States, I would say, um, that we could have a better system that is more inclusive, more efficient, that makes much cheaper transactions, especially transnationally, um, uh, available for many more people. So I think there is a point that we should update our system and the push is welcome. I think we need to think about that. The question is ultimately who should govern that mm-hmm. and whether we want to leave this to private forces or whether a payment system and the money that is transferred um, through that payment system is ultimately a public good that should be guarded by some other agents. But will, as yet, the U.S. central bank and U.S. regulators have not embraced from a public perspective? And yes, Facebook's leading the charge in the Libra Association, but it's joined by a number of other companies that would have equal stakes. It wouldn't be Facebook owning the situation to a certain extent. It would integrate very nicely within the platform. But do we not need some sort of platform the size, the scale of a Facebook that would just help bring such payments about as quickly? How would, would really an adoption of a digitalized dollar get into the ecosystem as quickly if it wasn't through a platform such as Facebook? No, I think this is what Facebook is offering. It's saying we are transnational. We have 2.7 billion users Mm. around the globe. And so we could scale this up at a level that actually no national central bank could do um, as well. On the point whether, um, you know, Facebook is just one of many, um, I don't think the Libra could start without Facebook being part of it. So that tells you that it's, you know, it's uh, not really one among equals. It's special amongst those um, because really they 
couldn't do it without it. I would imagine that all the legal bills that are currently being paid to lawyers to try to get through the regulatory hurdles are being footed not by the Libra Association, which doesn't really have much capital, right, but by Facebook. Let's talk about how Facebook and Libra, if it ever launches, sort of fits into your own prior work. Prior work. You've written this book recently, The Code of Capital. And the basic argument is that we live in this world, there's so much inequality, in part because governments define what can be used as capital, what's collateral, and all those are legal choices. They're not inevitabilities that were handed down from a tablet on a mountain. When you look at the prospect of a company as large and powerful as Facebook issuing its own currency, does that fit into a general pattern that you've seen in terms of what get, who gets to define and what is capital and money? Yeah, I, mean, I think, um, you know, having written this book made me particularly alert to something like, um, like uh, the Libra. But I would sort of say what I do describe in the book is that the state offers the legal institutions that I call the modules of the code of capital, but they're being used and put together by private attorneys on behalf of their clients. Hmm. So there is a hybridic system. We're using state law, and the specific uh, things about our state law is that private parties can avail themselves of state power to organize their horizontal affairs. Now I see in the digital revolution the possibility that you can have enormous power by controlling the digital code, um, that private parties can create themselves and then can use in ways that uh, create very differential power relations mm. in the markets and social relations in politics as well. Do you have any sense, though, of how this is all going to be reconciled? I mean, you can make an argument now that, that pretty much the existence of so many democracy, democracies out there aren't really bound together by ideology. They're bound together by a control of money, a control of their own currency. And when you introduce something like a Libra coin, or even if you allow Bitcoin to flourish uh, more so than it has, doesn't that sort of undermine the very basis of so many societies? It certainly is a game changer. If it mm -hmm. comes in the yeah. form in which it was designed, it would be a game changer because mm -hmm. it would basically challenge at some level, I would say, the monetary sovereignty, which is a critical part of what we do, and the ultimate control that some states, not all states, have over the creation of both private money and state money, right? So private money is what the banks have been doing mostly, right. and then you regulate the banks. And the shadow banking system, we have seen how private money can, can, can be created outside the banks, and now we're creating a, a new world in which we can create private money outside the shadow banking system in the digital world as well. I'm interested by your global perspective, and it's one that Facebook keeps on drawing upon to try and reassert itself, is that if we don't fight this, then China's going to win. And if you go to China mm. at the moment, you cannot buy a coffee unless you are somehow embroiled within Tencent, Alibaba, uh, Baidu, one of the verticals, the technology juggernauts. How are they already owning this space? And is it a race? I think they're owning the space in China. They're trying to go beyond China, but they're also locked in with the Chinese government and the Chinese central bank. So mm -hmm. that's sort of different. Um, that could also be a particular challenge because it is a, it's, a, it's an interesting hybrid between government and private in China, very much directed, I think, by the top, by the central powers. Um, uh, and so what Libra is trying to do is to say, well, let's just do a private alternative, but it's also, also going to be a monopoly. If it's going to be successful, it will be a monopoly. Right. Facebook itself is very hierarchically organized. Um, Mr. Zuckerberg controls 58% of the vote. You can't fire him. You can't do a takeover. There are no votes, right? So this is, um, it's different. I'm not saying it's China, but it's also not exactly a democratic um, entity. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television 
and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.